And then my little brother calls and he's like, I'm in suburban California and I have this idea and I need someone who will work for free. So like, will you come out and help me? And, um, every single person in my life told me I was crazy. They told me I was an insane person that I was throwing my career away, that I was throwing everything away. My mom sat me down crying. She's like, it's bad enough. I lost like one kid to this stupid idea. Like now I have two, like what's, what's going on? with the two of you. I mean, like talk about every possible way that you could blow your own life up. I mean, that's the thing I always love to tell entrepreneurs is that even my worst day working for myself as an entrepreneur is better than my best day working for someone else. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're sitting down with Randy Zuckerberg. Randy is an entrepreneur, author, Tony Award-winning producer, and Broadway performer. She's spent years in Silicon Valley, where she directed market development for a little startup called The Facebook. Later, she founded Zuckerberg Media, created a children's television show about the power of technology, and most recently, published her third book, Pick Three. In this episode, you'll hear about the early days of Facebook, Randy's decision to leap and start her own company, and how she managed to fuse entrepreneurship with her lifelong passion for theater. You'll also hear Randy's story about how she leveraged Katy Perry to launch one of Facebook's hottest features. We join Randy now, live at Lyft Labs. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Comcast, and welcome to Lift Labs. Thanks. We're so excited to have you here. Thanks. What a what a great crowd for so early in the morning. Thank you. I love that you stopped the woman in the back too and told her how much you loved her vest. No, I mean it, it's uh, there. I feel like the the fashion game is strong in here today too. So I'm, I appreciate it. So again, thank you so much for taking the time, and congratulations on this is now your third book. Yes. Third book, I was going to say that uh, it's time to, you know, like stop the, the family planning after this, you know, it's like third and done. <laughs> um, but I'm, I, I'm really thrilled. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about work-life balance and what that means, especially with entrepreneurs. And uh, it was really a thrill to work on this book. So in addition to you being an investor, a, and we're going to get into a lot of these topics, but an investor, a leader for women in tech a marketing expert, an author, a radio host. You're also a Broadway star, a two-time Tony Award winner. Like, wh- did you grow up in the in a musical family? What? Tell us, take us back to this. I I did, and it's um it's funny because sometimes journeys in life happen in very different ways than you imagine them. I th- I thought I was going to sing on Broadway was what I was going to do, and my dreams were crushed cruelly when I got into college and got rejected from the theater major the first week into school, and so I, I had to kind of ha- I guess my first entrepreneur pivot, if you will, happened at age 18 when suddenly I had to kind of rethink everything that I was going to do. And um, that's when I I found a a love of marketing and business. And that led me on a whole path. I worked at an ad agency. I then went out to Silicon Valley to work on, you know, a little thing called the Facebook out there for a while. Um, But 
uh, it was about five years ago, out of the blue, I had been at Facebook for about a decade at that point. And I got a call out of the blue from a producer of a Broadway musical saying, we have this 80s rock musical, Rock of Ages on Broadway. And we are one of the coolest ones. Such a cool musical. And they were like, we're looking for a tech personality to come star in this show. And I thought I was getting punked. Like, I thought I was on some TV show where someone was going to jump out and be like, I, I'm like, I'd given up on my dream almost 20 years before that. And um, it was a real offer. And I got that offer on a Thursday. By Monday, I was in New York City starting rehearsals. And uh, after seven rehearsals, had my Broadway debut. And you Rock of Ages. the process up, I understand. Yes. Well, I had just found out that morning I was pregnant. And, uh, so I was like doing the mental calculation. It was February and they, they were like, maybe in July you could be in the show. I was like, how about Monday, Monday, I will start in your show. And uh, I figured I was like, I have about like three months that I can do this. How many lines did you have or how many songs? Well, they pitched it to me as like this tiny little part that would be super easy to learn. And then when I got to New York, it was like the second lead female role in the show. Like I had to do a split. There was dancing. There was, it was like crazy. Um, that was the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life. So like, even after all this, you know, you guys are like on this journey of starting companies and thinking through big things. Like if you can star on Broadway after seven rehearsals in a sparkly leotard, like you can do anything that life throws at you. That, that is correct. So that was really exciting. I quickly learned that the only thing more grueling than working at a startup is doing eight shows a week on Broadway. Like, I mean, on our weekends, it was Friday night, two Saturday, two Sunday. It was like the craziest schedule. Um, it almost some days, two shows back to back. Um, and you can't phone it in if you're having a bad day. I mean, people are paying a lot of money for tickets. You can't just, you know, you're like, I'm hungover. I'm not feeling well. Like you can't, you can't do that. I'm sure you're ecstatic that you got that opportunity, but are you, would you have wanted that life all the time? No, I'm I'm so glad I got to check that box off. But now that has led me into a whole other life and world of producing, of taking what I learned on, on the forefront of, of startups and investing and mentoring entrepreneurs and now applying that as on the producing side of theater. So it's it's been a, a really interesting journey. I never thought that I would be on stage winning, winning two Tonys at all. And and for producing is not something I I thought, but it's funny how life takes you back sometimes to your dreams, just in a very different way. Exciting. And then I understand you're also, I say also, because I am as well, a big karaoke singer. In (laughs) fact, your whole team is, I think we're going out tonight. Is that right? Um, I'm kidding. What's your, uh, what's your go-to karaoke? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, First of all, I have to say, like, my team members that are here with me, Mimi and Jesus, somewhere in the back, are, like, 10 million times better singers than I could ever hope to be. Um, but I would just have to say my go-to song is Son of a Preacher Man. Oh, that's a good one. Jesus, you know, what about you? What's your go-to? Anything with me. Yes! <laughs> yes. That's great. I had to actually tell Jesus to, like, stop singing lullabies to my children because they were so much better than what I could ever do. I was like, you are, you are overshadowing me. You're so good. (laughs) So you mentioned that you had applied to go to Harvard in their theater school. You you did not get in. Obviously they're a mistake. You did end up going to Harvard. You majored in psychology. 
You graduated from Harvard, unlike some other family members. Um, <laughs> you embarked on a career in marketing. You had this like great thing and ahead of you, you know, the beginnings of a successful career, your sort of like path was set. And then you get this call to join this little startup called the Facebook. Well, what made you take the leap and put, you know, your path sort of on hold to do something new? No, I mean, on hold is a nice way to say it. Like I blew my life up. Like I had, I had this great, um, I was on this great track. I was at Ogilvy and Mather in New York city. I was dating a great guy. Like I, I was having a great time in my twenties in Manhattan. And then like my little brother calls and he's like, I'm in suburban California and I have this idea and I need someone who will work for free. So like, <laughs> will you come out and help me? And, um, every single person in my life told me I was crazy. They told me I was an insane person that I was throwing my career away, that I was throwing everything away. Um, all those same people circled back to ask for jobs later on. So like, let's be real. But, um, <laughs> I mean, like my mom sat me down crying. She's like, it's bad enough. I lost like one kid to this stupid idea. Like now I have two. Like what's, what's going on with the two of you? The guy I was dating had just given up his dream job in Silicon Valley to be with me in New York. And then I was like, thanks for doing that. I'm moving to Silicon Valley. I mean, like talk about every possible way that you could blow your own life up. I did. Um, I did. You we did. did. Okay. End up getting married. Spoiler alert. It worked out. Um, that's the thing I always love to tell entrepreneurs is that like even my worst day working for myself as an entrepreneur is better than my best day working for someone else. You know, I think the things that are the most terrifying in life, like if you feel in the pit of your stomach, that kind of fear and nerves and anxiety that you're doing the right thing. I've learned to kind of channel the fear into, into knowing that it's, it must be an exciting opportunity that's keeping me on my edge. And I just, I don't know, there was something about the, the early days of Facebook that I was like, I just have to be involved with this, even if it means kind of saying goodbye to all of these really safe things that are happening and in my life. To work with a sibling is not yes. Everything. It's not easy. I don't know if anyone here works in a family business at all. There's, um, there's things that are, yes, there's things that are wonderful, terrible, worse than terrible, like phenomenal. Um, we obviously had to have like really strong boundaries when we were not at work about shutting off and, you know, but, um, I think it, it helped that we were in very different lanes of the company. I did not touch engineering or product at all. I was really kind of in my consumer marketing and, and biz dev lane. So at the time, Facebook had just raised some funding. You had an office above a Chinese restaurant, a funny quick story. Last night I told my boyfriend that I was interviewing you and he said, ask Randy if she remembers me because Randy was the account executive, I guess, at Facebook that did the very first deal with Comcast, a department here called Comcast Interactive Media, which was run at the time by our boss now, Sam Schwartz, went to Facebook or Facebook came to it and said, hey, we have a new product called Zidio, I think is what he said. And they wanted to do some kind of a sponsorship with you. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier and you slightly remember. No, I remember, I remember <laughs> that very well because I remember, I mean, we were this tiny company where everyone was like in their twenties and Comcast like walks in like all like 
business-like and they were like, we want to do a deal with you guys. And we were like, we have no idea what that means, like to do a deal. Um, and I remember just all the, all the engineers, I was one of the only non-technical people at the company. So they were like, Randy, just figure it out. And, um, I just remember sweating in, in like a back room being like fun with numbers. How do I put a deal together? But it was great. I mean, we had a, I think almost 18 month long partnership. It was one of the first Comcast was one of the first major advertisers on the Facebook platform in a big way. And, um, and I, I think that to me was definitely one of the most exciting projects that I worked on at the we company. We were like your pilot POC. Yeah. It was dev, which is what we do here, which is just funny. It was, no, it's, I mean, it's really amazing. And I think in a lot of ways that kicked off a lot of interest and in, in video and, and that type of content on the site that has now gone on to be so successful and so powerful on the platform. So I, I have very, very fond memories of that. And that was one of my first experiences of like fake it till you make it that if you know, if you, if you're smart and you know what you're doing and you're working with great partners who are smart and bring that out, like you're going to figure it out. It's true. How much wonton soup did you eat? <laughs> we were, we were advised very early on to not eat at the restaurant. That was right below our, our office. Um, but yes, there was uh, a lot of food at that office and, uh, there was like the, it was like the Facebook 15 that you gained. <laughs> When did you have an inkling at Facebook, at the Facebook, that this was going to be a global change maker? Like, was there a moment in time when you really knew that this was something? I, I don't know if there was a moment, but I remember um, even in the very early days when the site was just for colleges only, I would walk through airports with my little laptop bag that had the Facebook logo on it. And people would like run me down and stop me and be like, I love that company. Mm. There was nowhere that I'd ever worked or, you know, logo shirt or anything that I'd ever done that I, I saw that kind of passionate response from people. And I think even then, I think there was only 5 million people that were using the site at that time. We were in a few colleges. I understood the value of having a brand that people feel passionate passionately about. And I think that was the moment that I thought, you know, if we do something right, we could be really onto something here. And you are the creator of a little feature called Facebook Live. Just do you know that? That we have Facebook Live because of Randy. Um, which has its, you know, it has its pros Because I got on. inspired from working on Zidio. <laughs> Doing a live video with you guys. Yeah, where where did actually where did Facebook Live stem from? Like and how did you work on that? Um, I think for me, I mean, I was always a, a huge fan of, of video content and I've always considered myself to be a storyteller. Um, I kept kind of, uh, pitching video things inside the company and, and people were like, no, that's not what we do. We're just a platform. Like we don't, we don't create video, like thank you next. And, uh, so finally we used to have these things called hackathons every few months. Um, and finally I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take one of my video ideas and I'm just going to do it at one of the hackathons and maybe people will, will see what I mean. So I took over this little broom closet and I started, uh, interviewing people in the company and streaming it. And it was very rudimentary, but nobody watched. My mom watched. I think that was the only person. And she was like, this is super boring. I'm tuning out. Um, so I didn't even pitch the project at the hackathon at the, the next morning. I just figured I was like, all right, I guess 
this is a bad idea. And then out of the blue, a few weeks later, I got a call from Katy Perry's management team at CAA. And they were like, we heard that Facebook's launching a live TV show and we want Katy Perry to be on it. And uh, that was another kind of fake it till you make it moment because I was almost like, I'm, of course, yeah, I was yes. like, I was like, no, I wish, I wish I had that gumption. I instead, like, you know, got the kind of uh, inferiority complex that you get as like a woman in business and imposter syndrome. And my first instinct was to be like, I'm so sorry, it's not a real show. Like I made it up. And then I kind of looked around the office because I was one of the only women there, and I was like, what would my male colleagues do? Like they would want to meet Katy Perry. They would, they would figure out a way to make that broadcast happen. And uh, so fast forward about two months later, Katy Perry was in our office doing the first ever Facebook Live broadcast. Her team's great too. Um, it was yeah. great. I mean, it was, it was, they were such, you know, They're advocates like and early adopters. Really and yeah, it was, it was very exciting. And that really put Facebook Live on the map from then. It was just kind of a, a constant stream of, celebrities and politicians and and notable figures who saw that as a first way to really connect directly with their audience through video. It's incredible. And what do you think personally is the obligation of technology companies of creating a tool like that, that can be used for really good things like Katy Perry's music and connecting with an audience, but also we have seen, you know, can also be used for, for, promoting negative. Absolutely. I mean, I, I struggle with this all the time. I still think that it's better for everyone to have a voice than for no one to have a voice. And the the unfortunate issue is that when you empower the good, you also empower people who you don't agree with or people who are using technology and negative purposes. There, there's no clear cut answer though, of who's good and who's bad. You know, you ask a hundred people what content is good and bad, and you have a hundred different answers. Who gets to police that? Who gets to decide who deserves a voice and who doesn't? It, it's so complicated. And for me, you know, I've had moments of kind of, inc- Maybe that will be like a filter soon. Yeah. I mean, you could, who knows, <laughs> but I've had moments of incredible joy seeing um, amazing things that people are using Facebook live for around the world with, you know, some of the disaster relief that's happening. And, um, I've also had terrible moments of heartbreak seeing what people post. And, um, it's, it's very challenging because when you give a voice to everyone, you give a voice to everyone. And our hope is that, you know, there's more good people in this world. That's right. Right. So then you decide to leave. You know, you, you got to leave a party when it's good. Yeah. Leave it at the top. Right. So what was the moment that, what was it that day that you woke up and you were like, you know what, it's time. And I have an idea for creating Zuckerberg media and then tell us about yeah. what you're doing now. Thank you. I mean, I don't think it was a moment. It was not a light bulb moment that I thought, you know, I have to leave. I loved what I was doing at Facebook. I was there for almost 10 years. I had so many incredible experiences I think, you know, to be totally realistic, I woke up one day, I was like in my early thirties and I thought, well, I think it's time for me to play the lead part in my own life rather than a supporting part. 
in the story of my own life. And, um, it, that was a scary thing to do because so much of my identity, I'd spent almost my entire twenties at, at this company. And, uh, that was a scary thing to do to go out on my own, but it, it felt like at some point I needed to rip the bandaid off and kind of step into my own. So I did, it took me several years and a lot of both successes and miserable failures in order to kind of figure out who I was on my own without Facebook and what I was doing. But um, through Zuckerberg Media now, we're really trying to empower a new generation of entrepreneurs who don't necessarily look like the typical vision of an entrepreneur who you have in, in your mind, you know, that guy with the hoodie and flip-flops, who could I be talking about? <laughs> so I, we do a lot of work, especially with, with women and girls in STEM. The two gaps that we've really identified of where we lose girls in, in STEM are around eight, nine years old is the first major gap. And then around the entrepreneurship phase of starting companies, people, they lack mentorship or guidance or programs like what you provide and, and give up before they even start. So almost everything that Zuckerberg Media does is either in the children's entertainment or um, supporting entrepreneurs kind of at that pivotal point. That's awesome work. Thank you. It's very important. Um, the The focus there, one, one thing I was reading about is you also started a fund Yes. It's a pretty specific fund, but it also really mirrors a lot of our focus areas. So we just came out, I think Luke mentioned that our next accelerator class is starting. We have applications are now open. All of our focus areas are online. It's all under media entertainment connectivity. Your fund is focused on early stage Israeli startups in yeah. media, entertainment, sports, and commerce. So we should, number one, we have to talk because we've got lots of companies in Israel we've met. Excellent. A lot of female founders we've met in um, yeah. Israel as well. So why Israel and why those focus areas? And obviously you've talked about your love of video and, and media. Yes. I think, I mean, my one of my big passions also is... Um, finding entrepreneurial hubs outside the obvious ones on, on the coasts of our country. Um, so whether that's, you know, incredible cities in the middle of this country or cities around the world that are really hotbeds for entrepreneurship, um, that's, those I think are areas of, of extreme opportunity. So uh, my goal is to kind of start with Israel and then look outwards at other cities and other areas, either inside our own country or, but Tel Aviv is just an incredible city for innovation. And you go there and it's sort of, it feels, it has a kind of like a San Francisco vibe, but there's, I mean, when you think of some of the big issues that are going on in that area of the world and the need for cybersecurity and the need for, for um, medical care and irrigation, I mean, they turned an entire desert into just incredibly usable agricultural land. So it's, um, there's so many interesting innovations that are happening there that, it, and a lot of entrepreneurs that are now coming to New York, coming to Los Angeles. So uh, this is kind of a test fund that we've launched um, with the goal of, of finding similar cities around the world. But I actually, I have a second fund now too that's focused around Broadway tech. Um, because my love, my love of theater, I've now started to get connected to a lot of entrepreneurs who are, um, building tech solutions for live theater and live events, whether that's 
blockchain ticketing or production software for choreographers to chart steps and get credit for things. And there's so many, whenever you have an up and coming industry, that's becoming a multi-billion dollar industry. You suddenly have a, there's a lot of room for innovative startups. So my, those are my two big focuses right now are on entrepreneurs, either coming out of Israel in the entertainment space or um, supporting the live theatrical space. We will definitely have to uh, talk. Excellent. I'd love to. Lots of good, uh, good companies that we've met. One city that we just spent some time in for a conference called Slush is Helsinki. And I've been so impressed by everything happening. If you, anyone has been following what's happening. Yes. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. Mimi and I were just there actually in Helsinki speaking. And it's incredible when you see, you know, uh, a government that's young and female. And, and so and there's I mean, a huge tech community there that is also young and female, especially in the esports and gaming space. So. You're absolutely right. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. So I think yeah. that hopefully the model that we're building in Tel Aviv can very easily replicate in cities like Helsinki, Estonia, in Brazil, there incredible areas of entrepreneur. I mean, really there, there's so many around. I was in Romania recently, which is an incredible hub of entrepreneurship. So it's, it's fun when you start to just broaden your scope out a little bit beyond what's obvious right here in, in this country, there's, there's incredible opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but do focus on the U S a little bit. Yes, cities, uh, obviously. Yeah. I, I mean, Are there cities though that outside of the Valley, I know yeah. you don't focus on the Valley necessarily, but Talk about some other cities you've been to. Philadelphia is an interesting model because, you know, we sit between D.C. and New York. And so we have that to deal with, let's just say. Um, We have a thriving, growing, always, um, you know, moving startup community in Philadelphia. Many people here today. Um, But what are some of the cities that you've had on your radar in, in the U.S.? There, I mean, gosh, there are a lot of cities I've had on my radar. I am. Um, we recently launched a project. Um, we're not. We're not doing it right now. But last year, we toured uh, an exhibit called Sue's Tech Kitchen around ten cities in the United States. And basically, our goal was to get children um, excited about tech by kind of creating an aha moment with food. So it was kind of a touring dessert cafe where you could 3D print chocolate and you could get liquid nitrogen cereal. And um, we had something called coding with candy where you had to drive this little robot. And if you got the candy, if you got the robot to the end, you got all the candy it was carrying and every child coded a robot to get the candy. And it was, so it was a really fun little traveling exhibit. And we took this to places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, Jackson, Mississippi, Omaha, Tacoma, Washington. Um, we, we were purposely looking for, for areas of the country that are kind of close enough to major cities where there's opportunity and, and a talent base, um, but far enough away that they're a bit overlooked in, um, in STEM fields. And, and that was, that was really incredible to me because there are so many cities in this country that are undergoing a renaissance of their own. Uh, Chattanooga, especially as a city that lost almost all of their automotive factory jobs and is now rebranding with some of the fastest internet in the country. And, um, these kind of startup apartment buildings that are both co-working, co-living with just really interesting, innovative solutions. So that, that was a real thrill for me to, to look around and see what's going on inside our own country and start to connect with startups there. 
So the sad truth, and I always mention this, um, only 2.8% of all VC funding in the United States goes to female-founded companies. It's up from a big 2.2% in 2017 and 2018. You left the Valley because you have said that you really did not want to keep being the only woman in the room. And I realized that that wasn't necessarily from a VC perspective. That was really tech talent, women in tech, et cetera. But maybe could you talk about some of the things that you've seen or, or are doing to help make a change in that? Where, where do you see the change? And, and the VC space in particular, do you think that women are even going in for this money? It, you know, that's a question I've been asked every time I bring this stat up. Well, what, what's the percentage that are getting turned away? Are they going in to even ask for the money anymore because they're just bootstrapping? So what's your, so well, obviously as a woman, um, you care about this, but yeah. you know, what have you seen that's working? What are you doing to to make sure that that we see a much bigger, faster yes, acceleration? Yes, it's, it's a really interesting question. First of all, I mean, it, it feels good to be in a room like this where you see so many great women. So thank you, and um, I, it gives me hope that that things are changing. I mean, that that number is pretty terrifying, that only 2% number. And let's be real. When you say that number, it means white women are getting 2.8% of funding. I, I've been doing a radio show on Sirius XM for five years now. And uh, some of the stats have shown that I think there's only about 38 black women who have ever raised over a million dollars ever. That That is not a stat that any of us should feel like comfortable going to bed with at night. So I think there's incredible room to be better in so many ways here. I do feel a lot of hope on the horizon. I think there are more female investors than ever before. You have to almost change the entire ecosystem because what ends up happening inadvertently is that people fund what they know and they're comfortable with. And then those people, when they get the money, they hire people who they know and they're familiar with. So people, they're not looking to have a lack of diversity. It's just that, that people do what they're comfortable with and invest in industries they're comfortable with. So we need to make sure that, you know, that we're empowering people with money who look different and are solving problems in, in different ways. So that's been a huge focus of, of what I'm working on in there. I mean, it, it's not something that only me or only a few of us will solve. We need many people out there. But I know for a while, there were only a tiny handful of female investors that you could count. And I have really noticed that a lot of women who have been part of successful company exits now feel like it's almost, it's their responsibility to turn around and hold the door open for other women and fund other women and give other women their first start and their first check. Uh, so that's something that that's really given me a lot of hope. And I think we'll really start to change the ecosystem. But I, you know, I haven't given much thought to that question of like, are women not even asking for that money? Um, and some of the philosophy there yeah. is, you know, are they bootstrapping, uh, you know, because they don't want to have a boss necessarily yes. as a board or they don't want to have investors. It'd be a good research project. On the mentorship front, we are really big on mentors here. We actually have a hundred plus mentors across Comcast, NBCU that help the founders that come through our programs. It is such an important part. One of the companies that was in our last class, Messy FM, you have been a mentor advisor and now investor in Messy. Talk about how you met Molly, who is at CES, which is why she couldn't be here, which is why I get to sit here because otherwise Molly was going to do this as, as a podcast. So hello, Molly. You know, talk about how you met Molly first. And then what's some of the advice that you would give to founders, someone like Molly, when, when starting a company? 
Molly, um, so messy, messy.fm is a really, is a great service that allows anyone to create a podcast and kind of one stop shop. So instead of having to create your podcast somewhere, upload it to somewhere else to edit it, upload somewhere else to syndicate it. You can now do everything through through one site and it's really easy, which, which I love. But uh, it wasn't that way when Molly first pitched it to me. It was just an idea in her head. I remember we sat in a coffee shop you know, and just scribbled down some notes and kind of put together her business plan together. I think the same thing that attract has attracted me to the arts my whole life is what attracts me to early stage entrepreneurs. I just, I have been obsessed my whole life with helping to create and put things into the world that didn't exist before I helped create them and like playing a tiny part. I don't need to be like the, the director, the lead actor and everything. I, I just, I like to feel that I put a little bit of my mark on something new that went into the world. And so I think the same joy that people get out of being kind of a patron of the arts that way, I, almost, I get that joy out of being like a patron of entrepreneurship. And so um, for me, it's a thrill to find those really smart talented, driven entrepreneurs and kind of be their first, like their first check-in, that first person who believes in them. Uh, there's a lot of no's that we all hear in the world. There's a lot of people who won't believe in us. Um, I think sometimes having that one person who does believe in you can change everything and change the whole course of a business. Who is your believer? I heard so many no's in, in my life. And I, um, there was, there was one particular moment, even it was just, I think a, a few months ago. So right when I first left Facebook, um, I, I got interviewed by a major, a major newspaper of what I was going to do next. And, it, it was the meanest piece I've ever written in my life. I really poured my heart out about how I loved theater and I wanted to go back to New York and make my mark on Broadway and do this. And, and the article was basically like Mark's stupid sister leaves Facebook and this is the end of her. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it was honestly the, I think the meanest thing I've ever, mm. ever read. And just a few weeks ago, that same publication, uh, did an article in which they quoted me award-winning Broadway producer, Randy <laughs> Zuckerberg. And I was just like, screw you, <laughs> you know? I, um, so it just showed me that, you know, even if no one else believes in you, like all you need is for you to believe in you. And, um, it, that was, it's hard, you know, it's hard sometimes when no one else sees your vision and, um, you see it so clearly. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that was such kind of a, a painful moment for me where I learned to lean on myself because I really didn't have people who were believing in me. And, um, I want to be that person for other entrepreneurs. So they don't have that moment. So we want to make sure to get to the book. Um, cause we know that you're on a book tour. So, and also I think we're going to take a, uh, a couple questions as well. This is such a great read. And my, ac my favorite part is actually the to-da list at the end, which we'll get to, and our team will probably do a to-da list exercise. They'll love me for that one. But this is your third book. Tell us about the difference between being well-balanced. You talk about this well-balanced and well lopsided. What's that? What's that all about? There was this uh, moment where 
I convinced my mom to take me to, to Harvard to do an admissions tour. And it was like, she was humoring me. She's like, there was no chance in hell you're going to get into the school, but like, fine, if I'll humor you, we'll go. Um, because mostly all of, all of high school, I, I just did tons of theater and music. I, I dropped out of math and science. I mean, gosh, I would never advise a young woman today to, to drop out of math and science, but I did. I, I mean, I was not the kind of candidate on paper. And I remember sitting in that admissions office and she was like, we're looking for two kinds of people here. We're looking for students who are well-balanced and then we're looking for incredibly interesting people who are well lopsided, who are going to kind of bring interest to the student body. And uh, that was the moment in my life. I was like, wait, I'm well lopsided. Like no one's ever put it in a, in a word that way before, but that, that's who I am. And uh, so I started to really to think about that in, in the context of careers. And, you know, fast forward many years after that, I found myself in a situation where I was starting my own company. I had just had a baby. I, I, was, I had all these major life changes. And someone asked me how I balance it all. And I was like, I don't. No one, no one balances it all. And so I kind of came up with my, my mantra today that uh, goes like this, work, sleep, family, friends, fitness, pick three. And the idea is really that at any given phase of your life, you're probably more lopsided than you are balanced on, on three of those areas. And the goal is to try to do all five of those over the long run of your life. I mean, I just had my third child also, so my life has been pretty lopsided in that area, but now she's six months old. And so I found myself, you know, really going back into work and back on the road and, and life switches back into other things. So I I've gotten, I've started to try to get okay with myself about putting some of that guilt aside and feeling okay with being lopsided and being okay with the things I'm not choosing. And, um, and the same thing, like when you don't hear from friends, that's don't right. take it personally. Yeah. Don't take it personally. They might be lopsided and not choosing you, is, you know, right. and, and that's fine. And I think, but I think all of us, we all prioritize. It's not an issue just for people with kids, just for women like this. We, we all are, are in phases of our lives where we have to prioritize. And how do you think that would work in a company like Comcast or some of the startups that are here today? Do you, you know, how do you see a team or an individual yeah. on a team using that process? Absolutely. I think with a team, it's really helpful. Well, first of all, if you're at a startup, probably everyone's prioritizing work. You, I mean, you have to, uh, no one else is going to love your business the way you do or, or feel as passionate. So in those early days, any entrepreneur should be lopsided towards work or you're in the wrong line of business uh, doing a startup. But I have found that once you get your team and, and things start to go, the great thing is that usually people have kind of different priorities at different times. Um, and as long as you can kind of balance that out and be forgiving uh, and, and really excited about other people's priorities and what they're doing, that's what really makes for, for great teamwork. So there's a huge issue with burnout in entrepreneurial culture, I almost didn't put sleep as one of the categories to proactively choose. Cause I was like, everyone does it. Why should I put that as like one of the five things you have to choose from? And then I realized that people don't actually sleep unless you're mindful about it. People don't 
prioritize their mental health and their physical well-being. So I actually learned so much probably from writing that chapter of any of the chapters in the book about uh, the detrimental effects of sleep on burnout and, and different um, areas. So I, I aspire as a new mom to be able to prioritize that in my own life soon again as well. I think moms are just the most amazing <laughs> prior people who can prioritize. Um, I suggest everybody do the ta-das because um, it, it seemed like a really great part of the book and I'm excited to, I'm going to print it out. And do Thank it. you very yeah. much. So do we have a couple, I think we have a couple minutes for some questions. Hi. Yes. So most of your Broadway producing credits are fairly recent and Rock of Ages was like 10 years ago. So what kind of kept your foot in the theater world uh, in between Rock of Ages and your producing credits and how did you kind of get your foot back in the door? Thank you. So, um, so that's a great question and shows a real knowledge of theater and, and timing. So a great job. Um, I actually, I came into rock of ages towards the end of its run. Um, they were, I guess, like had exhausted every real celebrity they could put into the show. So they were just like, Oh my gosh, like we're on our D list now of people. So like, let's get Randy. Um, so I was in rock of ages in 2014 and yes, but that's a good point. I actually didn't have my first producer credit until last year. And what I realized is that like, it's really tempting when you get into a new industry, whether it's a startup that you're doing or anything, it's really tempting to just like throw your elbows in and like, just go for it. And sometimes what I found is the best thing to do is kind of just quietly listen and observe and learn about the industry you're getting into rather than just kind of chuck yourself into it. You can learn a lot by just kind of watching what other people do. So I, I got pitched on a lot of things to be part of, and I said no to everything for three years. Um, and I just kind of, I took as many meetings as I could. I saw 80 shows a year for three years, just to kind of see what was going on on Broadway, off Broadway, tiny cabarets, everything. I, I, found in those three years, two sh tiny shows off Broadway that really caught my interest. One was called Hades Town. And one was a revival of Oklahoma. And I, I followed those for, for about two to three years. I learned the producers. And then last year, I got the call that both of those shows wanted to move to Broadway within like months of each other back to back. And so in the same year, I got my first two Broadway producing credits. And then both of those shows won Tony's. So, but it was a, it was a slow kind of very calculated, a lot of listening of what other smarter, more experienced people than, than I were doing. And also finding what I was passionate about in the industry. I actually never would have guessed coming to New York that I would have been attracted to kind of like a gritty jazzy show like Hadestown. I never would have, would have thought that, but from doing kind of those years of exploration, I learned, I was like, okay, I really want to support shows that have, that are written by women and that are tackling kind of real issues of the world. And so now I, now, right now I have five shows that are, that are running on Broadway that I'm a part of, but that was a, a good lesson for me in kind of patience and the importance of, um, understanding an industry before you dive in. It's very similar if you're picking a company. To Absolutely. In, right? So you're picking Absolutely. these shows based on what your gut's saying and that's right. Looking at what you think the trends are and people are interested in going and seeing yes. them. Um, but funny enough, so now I'm a producer on the Rock of Ages revival that just oh, came back. Fun. So it's all come, it's all it. come full circle. So if you wind up in New York City, come see it. It's, I, I think, the most fun show that, that you can see. 
Another question. Ophiola. So in the time that you've moved kind of um, from an interest in Broadway through tech and then back to Broadway, we've seen an interesting resurgence um, in sort of um, Broadway moving into the mainstream, kind of with Lin-Manuel Miranda coming up in the Heights that was stepping out into the scene, but not, not huge. Um, and then Hamilton coming out and him becoming, you know, a household name. So do you have any intentions knowing that you have a background in video, a background in uh, the Broadway space and, and a large platform and moving into um, film like Lynn has? So that is a great question. And it's honestly something that I obsess about every single day for like the last seven years, because I have now worked in two industries that have such polar opposite views on content and distribution. So I worked in Silicon Valley where they're like, we don't even care what people are posting. We just want billions of people to be on our platforms. Like who cares about the content that they're posting, like cats, whatever. And then, um, I, now I'm in this industry where like, we're so snobby about our content that we believe people will fly to New York <laughs> city to see it. And if they won't fly, then who cares about them? They shouldn't see our show. And I was like, I'm sorry, there needs to be a happy medium between these two worlds because content, these giant distribution platforms are nothing without great content. At the same time, it is stupid to me that like, I could open up any sports app and like millions of people are watching whatever sports game is happening tonight, but only like 200,000 people will see the top Broadway show in New York, even if every seat is filled for a year. For me, that I obsess about that question that you just asked about how you find that happy medium in the middle where you're not kind of like oversaturating, where you're still keeping that incredible experience of being live with an artist in the theater, but how do you find bigger distribution channels to make things more mainstream? So if you obsess over it too, we should connect after. Hi, Randy. Um, so what you said about uh, you being the patron of the arts and um, that's what really resonated with you in entrepreneurship as well. Um, what would be your advice on finding uh, like-minded individuals within the entrepreneurship community that felt the same way as you did? First of all, I, for me, uh, it's been, I, I've, I cannot kind of overestimate the value of peer mentorship in a lot of this. I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there who will tell you to like, find like one mentor who believes in you. For me, I've personally never been able to find that. For me, my best mentors have always been the people sitting right next to me who were going through the same challenges and rising together. So I think that sometimes like that person who's going to believe in you, like might not be four layers up. They might just be sitting right next to you somewhere who's like really passionate about just being on that journey with you in another way. I also think uh, a great place to look are like women who love entrepreneurship, but are like, maybe they've already done it themselves and are like, I'm exhausted. I, I love that early stage startup but I don't want to do it again myself. I would much rather hold the hand of someone else who's going through it and, and share my learnings um, than be on the front lines myself. And I think, so I, I'm like a professional mom to entrepreneurs now, I guess. So I think even, you know, especially like looking for, for women who have been there, done that before, who can kind of um, start as advisors and, and share your journey. But um I, I think you'll be surprised. I think there are a lot more people out there that like think it's just incredibly fun and rewarding to to join you on your journey. And uh, for many people, I mean, that's a 
supporting an entrepreneur and getting something off the ground like that, I think is just about the best thing that you could do with your money. So it's, um, I think more people are realizing that. We have time for two more questions. And I'm very available on social media for anyone who didn't get to ask questions. So please. uh... Thank you for speaking with us today. Um, My question is, what advice will you give your own children as they navigate school and careers, life, friends, family? I'm just curious to know what uh, your advice will be. Oh my gosh. Well, I like to say I'm a professional mom to entrepreneurs and an amateur mom to my own children. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I guess uh, the thing that I... I'm always reminded of is that my, my own parents were doctors and it would have been really easy for them to push their children towards medicine. And despite probably all of their best urgings to to push us into medicine, they didn't. And uh, so I have to kind of continuously remind myself with my kids that the jobs my children will have probably don't even exist today. So how could I push them towards anything? How could I, how could I counsel them towards anything that's happening in, in the world right now if the jobs that they're going to have don't even exist? Like I can't even fathom them. And so I think the the best thing that I try to enforce in my own children is kind of that sense of creativity and wonder and curiosity and keeping your eyes open for things. But if anyone has any parenting tips, I'll take them, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. One of the things I found really interesting is uh, you're really bringing out the focus on storytelling. Okay? So the question from a entrepreneurship and technology point of view that I have is, in your experiences and uh, adventures, what technologies, storytelling technologies or storytelling approaches have not been appreciated or deserve more attention and for some reason are not getting the attention they deserve. For me, that's that was the first reason that I started getting attracted towards video is I really think that live video is the only way left of creating scarcity around storytelling because if you miss something that's live, you've missed a shared cultural community moment. And I think that's why in this age of kind of unlimited content that you could stream, we're seeing a a resurgence in live video and people kind of wanting to take part in those shared moments. So I think, I think live video, I would still just like bet the the cart there, even in this age of, of, of countless streaming platforms. But the other thing I think is audio. That's why I really took an interest in Molly and podcasting. We're at kind of this magical window right now where I think there's something like 100 million Americans who listen to podcasts, but only about 600,000 podcasts that get regularly updated. And so there's a huge gap right now between the amount of people who want content and a small amount of content that's being created a year from now that window won't exist anymore. A year from now, there'll be millions of podcasts and it'll be too late to kind of get that first moving advantage. But I think this is a rare year, like at the dawn of blogging, that there's an advantage if you're a great storyteller to use audio. Nice thing about audio is it's super inexpensive. Yeah. You just get the equipment, you can, you know, record, edit, Especially like on that's right. I le- I've learned I've learned from Molly and Messi that all you need is the Yeti microphone on Amazon, which is a hundred dollars, and then a subscription to Messi.fm. So for under like under two hundred dollars a year, you could have your own show. And what's nice too is like unlike a book per se, um, although a lot of people are doing audiobooks and reading the books, but 
you know, you don't necessarily need to edit everything. That's right. You're just having a conversation, recording those conversations and more and more people are having these micro conversations. So it's really, I, I may want to know like what you and your friends talk about on the weekends and eventually like everyone will have their own audience and audio seems to be a really affordable way to, to create that. Totally. And, and the more niche, the better that you can get, which is great. And I, with video, I love video, but then I'm like, does my hair look good? Is the lighting good? Am I wearing like a nice outfit? What's going on with audio? You don't have to, you sit in your pajamas and you, and you can have a, a show. It's great. <laughs> you can record, you know, an entire season of your show in one day and then roll it out every few weeks. Well, you have been such an amazing guest. Can't think yeah. of a better way to kick off the year. Thank you, Randy Zuckerberg. Thank you everyone Thank you very for being much. here. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. This is great. And just a reminder, um, you know, I wanted to also thank the Lift Labs team that always do a great job and make this all look so easy. Thanks for everyone for showing up. And just a reminder that our accelerator applications are open, whether that's you, you're starting a startup, you have a startup, or you know someone, whether they live here or in Helsinki or Tel Aviv, encourage them to apply. Thank you. Thanks. Yay. Thank so you. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was hosted and produced by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, mixing and editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.